Welcome to Urbanism Vancouver, a podcast that looks at how we can make Vancouver a better urban experience. Together, we'll dive into the workings of our built environment in Vancouver and discuss how we can get involved in our community. Hi, I'm your host, Helen Loy. With each episode, I hope to share with you some insights from my industry experience and explore how we can make Vancouver a more livable and affordable place. I hope that you will learn a little and perhaps be inspired to be more involved in impacting positive change. Before we get started today, we want to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded and produced on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh nations. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging, and recognize the enduring connection they have to this land. We strive to have our conversations contribute towards reconciliation and work towards sustainability and equity for all the custodians of the lands. All right, brace yourself. Today we're going to talk about zoning. Zoning is something most people probably don't consider when they think about new buildings. Instead, We might think about safety regulations, such as fire protection, protection against natural disasters, and general life and safety. But the reality is, most of these are dealt with through our building codes. Instead, zoning bylaws are land use regulations that exist at our local city level. So let's investigate how zoning originated in Vancouver and discuss some of its historic and current impacts. Each city has its own zoning bylaws, which are a set of rules that map out the various properties across the city in different classes, or zones, and what's permitted within each of these. For example, some zones allow only residential uses, meaning that it cannot have any retail or business functions. Other restrictions include building heights, such as limiting buildings to three stories or less. There are also rules about how close buildings can be to property lines, how many parking spots are required for each building based on their use, or even the type of materials buildings can have. The list goes on. Zoning hasn't always been part of urban development. In the 1920s, zoning was first introduced in Point Grey, which was then its own municipality separate from Vancouver. It was the first city to introduce zoning in Canada. Here's an excerpt from then-chairman of the Point Grey Town Planning Commission explaining his intent behind zoning. At the present time, over 90% of the municipality is zoned for one-family dwelling districts. Point Grey has no slum district. By 1927, the city of Vancouver was also working on their own zoning bylaw. They hired Harlan Bartholomew. His most pressing concern was apartments. You heard that right, apartment buildings. When asked what violations he should consider in the zoning bylaws, he said, The only serious abuse is the intrusion of undesirable apartment houses into residential districts. Now, why would someone want to regulate where apartments can or cannot go? What sort of threat do they pose? 
The reality is, keeping apartments at bay had more to do with the people living in them than the buildings. At the time, the ideal family and desired neighborhood consisted of hetero white middle to upper class families. Other groups, such as ethnic minorities, gays, single mothers, or low income families, were considered undesirable. This was also reflected in some legal documents. In the British properties, an area in West Vancouver, there were legal covenants on properties that stated up until the 1950s. No person of the African or Asiatic race or of African and Asiatic descent except servants of the occupier of the premises and residents shall reside or be allowed to remain on the premises. While this discriminatory language has mostly been removed, the attempts to prevent apartments are still very much ingrained in our modern day zoning bylaws. In fact, there is no zone that permits medium or high density outright, despite the city of Vancouver's zoning bylaws having more than 800 zoning districts. Most of these permit low rise detached homes. It is much, much easier to demolish a large single family house and replace it with something of the same or larger size than it is to replace it with a small apartment, even though the latter allows more people to be housed more cost-effectively and more sustainably. The topic of new housing and where it should go is often a very challenging conversation. It's difficult because it's so close to home. Yes, pun intended. For newcomers, it's a matter of where they can place their roots and create their futures. For existing residents, it can mean the threat of displacement and change in their neighborhoods. To help us get into this discussion, I've invited Dennis Agar. Dennis has done a bit of work investigating a more equitable way of determining where new housing should go. He is also a passionate advocate for better urban environments. I am an urban planner. I've been working at TransLink for 10 years, working on different ways of making buses better. But being a planner, you are really inherently, you know, the deep connection between transportation and housing. And as a person that lives in Vancouver also, that's how I experience housing. Yeah, I'm, I'm really passionate about the role that urban planning can play in kind of addressing the crises of, you know, the housing shortage and climate change. I'm passionate about transit kind of for the same reason. Transit can help you access more housing and, and it can reduce your carbon footprint. Great. Yeah, for sure. Those things are so tied together when you think about being able to provide housing in places where people don't have to rely so much on a car. You had sent me a piece that you had worked together with Jens von Bergman. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, yeah, about, you nailed it. Okay, good. About um, <laughs> renter density. And so the title of the piece was called, Where Should New Homes Go? A Map of Renter Density. Can you tell us a bit about kind of what prompted you to work on this and how you even got together with Jens, I guess. Yeah, I think, you know, there's there's this whole kind of urbanist community that see each other at like different lectures. There used to be a lot more lectures downtown with, uh, you know, all these urban nerds coming together. And that's how I met Jens at like nice. one of these. And when the idea to start talking about renter density came popped up in my head, he was the first person I came to. But the reason I, uh, you know, I wanted to work on that 
at the time, we were talking so much and hearing so much about the dem evictions happening in Metrotown, where anywhere in the region on the SkyTrain, the city of Burnaby was targeting exactly the place that would have the most negative impact on renters. Burnaby had picked the most vulnerable people to displace, and that's where they wanted to put their densest housing. And so it seemed to me just to be like really the opposite way to look at things. And, and you know, we can get into the politics of it in, in a bit, but I kind of started thinking, okay, if we're going to complain about the way that Burnaby is approaching these demovictions, we could present an alternative. Like where where should people actually go? Like it's kind of a fundamental question for urban planning. You know, for decades, the answer has been, you know, build single family houses in the farmland on the edge of the region, anywhere in North America, you know, that's a standard thing. And now we're talking about infill and densification and, you know, people actually do want to live close to things in the core and, and, and those kinds of things. And so if you're not going to put people on farmland, you're going to have to put them somewhere that's pushing out something else, whether it's, uh, you know, a parking lot or an industrial building or other houses or apartments. So one way to kind of determine if you are really sensitive to dem evictions and you're concerned about displacing people who are renters, one way to identify the best places to have that new density is to find the places that have the fewest renters. And so that's what Jens and I kind of set out to do. And we we limited it to places that had access to frequent transit. So just, you know, thinking that should be transit proximate and made this heat map that shows, you know, these are the parts of the regions that have less than one renter per acre. And these are the other parts that have dozens or hundreds of renters per acre. When you make a map like that, it makes it so desperately clear that the area just south of Metro Town in Burnaby, where all those affordable low-rise apartment buildings were, was absolutely the worst place that you could imagine. This is the place where you will endanger the most people by potentially putting them out on the street. The renter density that Dennis describes is an important consideration when we discuss where to add new housing. Our governments recognize that we need to build a lot more homes. But conversely, there's a lot of resistance from people who don't want to see change in their neighborhood. This is evident with our recent Broadway plan approval, where additional density is again placed on top of existing density, while other areas like Shaughnessy or West Point Grey are kept untouched. And so, What often ends up happening is that much-needed new homes are forced onto areas in communities that are most marginalized, most at risk of housing insecurity, and also most likely to be majority renters. I asked Dennis to tell us about the geographic areas that his research covered, as well as some of the key findings from this project. We did it for all of Metro Vancouver, as long as it was covered by transit service at least every 15 minutes throughout the day. So that excludes, you know, big chunks of Surrey and Maple Ridge and that kind of thing. But you talk about the Broadway corridor and then, you know, just south of it is Shaughnessy and it had absolutely the lowest renter density and just a few minutes walk from the future Broadway, Broadway line. I'll put the link for people who want to read it and look at the map if they're interested, but maybe since we can't visualize it with audio. <laughs> um, on a podcast. Could, <laughs> we could. Maybe you could just give a quick summary as to like some of the high-level patterns that one might see if they were looking at this map in terms of where that density, where that renter density is. Sure. Yeah. And it's 
didn't totally conform to what we were expecting to, which was really exciting. Obviously, the places like Metro Town and anywhere in the, you know, central Vancouver, like north of 16th, basically, and, and west of Commercial Drive, like that whole kind of core segment is going to have a high amount of renters because it has a high density. And, you know, even condo buildings have more renters than a single family house. Right. You know, because, you know, it's just a matter of odds, you know, even if 10% of condos are rented in a 20 story tower, that's still a ton of people compared to a single family house. But what was really interesting was the difference between the west side of Vancouver and the east side of Vancouver. The build form isn't necessarily all that different. Like you take an average block in, in the west side, an average block in the east side, and they might look pretty similar. But on this renter density map, there are far more renters in those single-family homes in South Vancouver. Right. So like, uh, you know, a Vancouver special might have seven or eight renters in it, depending on the situation. Even in that context, it really, really highlights the the value of this kind of analysis. The other thing, so obviously I mentioned Shaughnessy yeah. is just so, so, so few renters. And we can get into Shaughnessy a bit more, but it was actually, historically, it had been community of renters. All of those mansions were split up into... Um, boarding houses yeah oh wow uh, okay it's like because it's so central right like it's such yeah. a perfect location to have a ton of renters and then it was an intentional effort in last century kick all those renters out and to re-establish this mansion district that's what the historic preservation did and uh but it's so close to the future sky train it's wild um, for sure and downtown and, and really just yeah. to the middle of our city yeah 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 the other thing that i think really stood out is the renter density at stations on the Millennium Line. You know, Brentwood is getting a ton of new rental, which is exciting. But everything east of there, all of the stations, so like Holdham, Sperling Burnaby Lake, Lake City Way, within a 10-minute walk of these stations, you have so many single-family homes. And these are people that will have access to the urban core in just minutes, like walking to the SkyTrain. And that SkyTrain will get so much more useful once the the subway, so once it's extended on Broadway, eventually it'll go to UBC. And then on the other side, the gondola will be built to SFU. And so all of these, these reasons why you want to put a lot of density on the Millennium Line, it's just going to get that much better. And to my knowledge, there hasn't been any kind of broad effort in the city of Burnaby to, to convert those single family zones to tower zones. I just recall when I was looking at the map, there seemed to be a pretty distinct line running down, I want to say, Camby, yeah, um, kind of yeah. that east-west divide. What you said earlier about how, you know, if you look at the physical properties of these different areas, they don't look very different. And yet when you look at the map, it's it's like a very clear, almost like, oh, this is renters on this side. And what are your thoughts as to kind of why that map looks the way it does? That's, a, that's an open question. All I can do is speculate. I wonder to what extent the Vancouver Special has played a role. Like they are more common on the east side and, and they're very flexible to allow for, you know, rental units and that kind of thing. I, I There's no question, I guess, that the, the lots are a little bit smaller on the east side than they are on the west side. But obviously that can't be the whole explanation. I think it's really has to do with the sense of kind of exclusion on the west side i want to say like that the mm -hmm. I, I don't know exactly how to articulate it but the really does seem like there's more freedom on the east side to 
have multiple generations of a family or multiple units on the east side, there's more transit access on the east side, like the Expo line and the camp and the Canada line. Like if you're in between those two, you know, whatever bus you take can take you to either one. And that gets you to a lot of different jobs, potentially. I think that relates as well to lot sizes, because the idea that if a lot is larger, then by default, you're going to have to have wealthier people who have more money to be able to buy a larger lot and build a bigger house. Would be really curious to see kind of how the city's zoning use relates to that density map that you've created. Yeah, it totally matches up with, um, you know, the historical zoning. Like there's this specific zones for historical protection and you can just put it on top of the renter density map and it's identical. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And and what's what's really exciting about Shaughnessy to me is that because the zoning that exists today is so restrictive on what you can do with it, right? Like all you can have is that historical mansion. You can't build anything on the big vacant lot around it, like the lawns or whatever. The outcome of that is that per square foot, this is the cheapest land in the region, or at least maybe not the region, at least in in Vancouver, because the zoning is artificially keeping that lot value down. And so if an affordable housing developer could get access to that land at its current cost per square foot and actually put something there, you know, the cost that they would incur to do that would be so much lower than in any part of other part of the region. I see it as a kind of an exciting opportunity. If if there was, say, if zoning that said only like this is this is what you're allowed to build if you're a private citizen or if you're a nonprofit housing developer, then you can build so much more um, that would allow those nonprofit housing developers to like go to town. Dennis highlights an important opportunity we have when it comes to zoning. Though zoning has historically been used as a tool to exclude, we certainly have the ability to alter it so that it instead gives us an advantage for much needed affordability. So I wondered, are there any other patterns in this map that came as a surprise? Just in terms of other things that I've mentioned on the map, I think we've we've covered the main ones. Oh, you know, actually Ambleside in West Vancouver is a shockingly dense place for renters. Interesting. Um, I would not have guessed that. Yeah, right? I mean, you look at it and there are all these beautiful 60s, 70s concrete apartment towers right on the beach. If more of those were able to be built today, you know, it would be much more inclusive of of a place. And if you look at the amount of time it takes on transit or by bike to get into the core, it's really shocking how close Ambleside is to downtown Vancouver. Yeah, for sure. It seems like a lot of the areas where there is high renter density is a lot of the stuff that's built maybe like decades ago, 60s, 70s, 80s. Broadway plan, I think, is good example of good reason why people feel like that is an unfair place to add more density when there's so many other areas in our city. And I feel like sometimes by the time we get to that conversation of the Broadway plan, it's kind of, it's already too focused on an area. Like we really should be looking at the city or regional scale, right? Because by the time you're going into the Broadway plan, it already feels like you're pitting existing renters who live there, who advocate for the people to be able to stay there and have security versus A bunch of people who might just feel like, hey, we finally get an opportunity to add so much supply that we really Uh need. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is that like, what is the ethical 
justification for maintaining these low density neighborhoods. Like when we're seeing areas with a renter density below one acre, uh, one per acre, and we know that there's a housing crisis, we know that the the compassionate thing to do is to expand the amount of housing available, especially uh, government built housing and not-for-profit housing. Why are we forbidding this, you know? Right. Uh, And Ultimately, it makes us pit housing supply against existing renters. And it's yes. it's just a real false dichotomy. Like we can just pick other places, you know, if we want. And, you know, the other piece of that is that Burnaby, after Mayor Hurley was elected, uh, implemented nation leading renter protection so that if you're in a building that you're dem evicted from a building, like if the building you live in is going to be demolished, you have right of first refusal to move into that new building at exactly the same rent subject to like the annual rent increases. And the developer will have to pay your moving costs to go into a place temporarily. It's got to be in the neighborhood and they'll pay your moving costs to go into the new place if you want to. Right. And I think we're seeing that in many other municipalities as well. And I think that's mm. important. It's, yeah. I don't know how many other cities in Canada or North America does that. And I think... Sometimes that's something that people who are very focused on housing supply often will say, well, that's just going to disincentivize new rental from being able to be feasible because Mm. they see it as, you know, if I'm a developer and I have to add up all these costs of doing this program of making sure that renters can come back in at their existing rents, then it's just going to make it harder to make a project feasible. But again, I just think it's another reason why we need to step back and go, yeah, it should be disincentivizing. It should be forcing us to look in, in other areas. That's my hope. I hope it does disincentivize displacing renters, right? Like, or at least it appropriately costs like okay you can you can have this negative impact on a renter but you really have to you're gonna have to pony up to do it and then that i hope makes the developers more enthusiastic about developing in places that don't displace renters namely single family housing which thus far is like still kind of remains untouched like we've had incremental progress over the last few months about allowing these small things in these residential areas, but it just doesn't meet the moment in terms of how much housing we need. Dennis is referring to some recent changes in our region. The city of Vancouver recently enacted a policy, and one is being proposed by the BC provincial government to apply across the province. Both of these attempt to provide options for more missing middle housing. Missing middle housing refers to the options that are more dense than a detached home, but not quite as large as a six-story or taller apartment building. It's the medium density housing that's currently lacking. However, these policies only permit four to six homes per lot, and in some cases, eight units, and they aren't any easier or more feasible when compared to just demolishing and replacing a large detached home. In other words, there is no incentive to actually build such missing middle housing with these current policies. With this in mind, I wanted to know where Dennis thought that new density should go. I mean, there's still choices to make. Like, I'm just kind of looking at the map now. And so if Shaughnessy is our baseline, it has 0.3 renters per acre. So like almost zero renters per acre. We've got some kind of the average in East Van is kind of like three and a half, four renters per acre. And there are some blocks where it's like up like five, six. 
so like, again, we know that if we upzone in those single family homes, like there is partially a point there that if we upzone those, there will be some renter displacement, but it's just a matter of making, making a decision. Like we have to, as a society, figure out the most compassionate thing to do. And I think building no housing anywhere is not compassionate. Greenfield development, people saying, let's, let's build out on the ALR. Okay. That's like, that's a choice. I think there are a lot of other disadvantages and like could build out on industrial land. That's also a choice. We hear people complaining that there's a shortage of industrial land. So I don't think we'll ever get to a point where development will displace zero renters. But as long as those renters can be fairly compensated and as long as we can try and focus on the least impacts, I feel like that's the right way to go. I agree. I think think we're starting to shift that way in terms of the compensating renters more fairly, but the other piece is really missing in terms of like focus on better areas to densify. I very often hear this idea of like, well, have you ever thought that, you know, maybe we can't just all fit in Vancouver? (laughs) And again, I think the data like your map just shows that actually we actually we do have a lot more room. We do have a lot more opportunity to add more housing in in these areas. Yeah, I feel like person like that, they have in their brain this image that if if we just don't let anyone in, then things will stay the way they were in like 1997 or something like that. I can have all the cultural amenities and all the things that I like about my community will just stay the same. And what they don't maybe realize is that things can never not change. If we build that wall on the border of the region and don't let anyone in, all the things that you rely on are going to just start failing. The people that are coming to this region are keeping it alive. Yes. And yeah, I'd like, I don't know how else to say that you need to care about newcomers. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And it might not even just be brand new people that are new to like brand new to Vancouver. It could also just be someone's daughter or son yeah. who has been living at home. And, you know, now they're mid 20s want to look for, OK, what do I do next? Where do I where can I move to? That gives me a bit of autonomy in my own space. Uh-huh. So I can start to build my life, right? And so I think it's easy for people to think that, oh, if we just don't let people in, don't have to think about them. They don't need homes, uh-huh. don't have to change my neighborhood. But yeah, we have we have a lot of great stuff in our in our region and we can have a lot more people be able to enjoy it. Yeah, your point about the fact that renters are coming from inside the region. One of the projects that I always daydream about doing is finding some of those places on the renter density map that have really low renter density and going door to door and just having conversations with the homeowners. Uh, Talk them through the process of their child who might be grown finding a place to live and see like it would take a lot of time. I do happen to love going door to door. (laughs) But imagine, like, I would love to have some of those people emerge as advocates once they realize, like, oh, right. if we keep this zoning regime the same, then my kids and grandkids are never going to be able to live. I Like, they can either live in my house or they could live in Alberta. And those are the only right. two options. As you heard from my conversation with Dennis, the issue of where new homes should go is not always about newcomers to our communities, but often about planning for younger generations that are already here. Many municipalities across Canada and North America have been working on different types of zoning reform. This is because many are recognizing some of the harms due to past zoning regulations, 
and the need to address them so that we can have more equitable urban environments. However, these changes have been extremely slow. We are continuing to see a very small area permit medium or high density. The results are often referred to as the grand bargain, which describes cities continuing to push higher densities in a small, limited area so that they can continue to appease wealthier homeowners in very low-density areas by keeping these zones untouched. This not only continues to severely restrict where we can add much-needed new homes, but also it continues to exasperate wealth and social inequality for current residents. Change is a constant when it comes to our built environment, but we have the means, and I would argue we are obligated to ensure that our policies encourage change in a way that is inclusive and fosters diversity, rather than a change that results in displacement and exclusion. Zoning is only one tool, but it is a powerful one, and we should be using it to make our cities more equitable and affordable. On our next development, we'll continue my conversation with Dennis Agar. We'll look at something that's often brought up alongside discussions about new housing, the topic of infrastructure for new homes. Added housing obviously creates stress on our current services, like public transit, and upgrades are necessary with a growing population. So how do we address this? You've been listening to Urbanism Vancouver, the podcast dedicated to bettering our built environment. Be sure to follow us on your listening platform of choice so you don't miss our future releases. I'm Helen Loy. Thanks for listening. This podcast series was independently funded and produced by myself and Aaron Johnson. Visit us at urbanismvancouver.com. <laughs>